As we've been studying through the book of Genesis together, we've now uh, concluded the creation week, and we still have a long way to go in our series, but I wanted to take this evening as an opportunity for us to focus a bit more explicitly on something we've touched on at different times in our study, and that's really the issue of creation versus evolution. And I want to just take a little bit of time to think about the nature of the conflict between these two and the significance of the conflict between these two. So first of all, the nature of the conflict. And I think here it's really important for us to understand as we're thinking about creation versus evolution. We're not talking about science versus faith or reason versus religion. We're actually talking about faith versus faith or religion versus religion. Because in the understanding of evolution, it is actually a religious belief. It is a faith belief. And it's in part because of what evolution actually says and does. And here I want to be clear, I'm not talking about science. I'm talking specifically about evolution, evolutionary thought, and its explanation for our world where our world came from, what it's like today, those kinds of things. That evolution actually uh, is a a religion and not a science. And in part, that's because there's a difference between what people sometimes distinguish observational science and historical science. Observational science really focuses on what we see now and makes some thought about what we could expect in light of that in the future. And so that's where you can conduct experiments, you can test things that are here today. Historical science is looking at evidence today and trying to say, where did it come from? And the big problem is you can't recreate what happened in the past. You can try the same test a few different times to see if it'll work again. You can't really recreate what happened in the past. And so what you're looking at, both as creationists and as evolutionists, is you're looking at evidence or facts today. And when you look at them, you are inevitably interpreting them. There are no such things as just brute facts or plain facts. Every piece of evidence, every fact, inevitably is interpreted and understood in light of what you already know or what you believe to be true. So let me try to give you an example of this. Let's say you make some cookies and you come back a little bit later and you realize a couple of the cookies are missing. You see some crumbs leading down the hallway. You go down the hallway to the room of your young son. You open the door and you find your young son in there with chocolate smeared on his cheek. What has happened? Well, you you have facts. Two cookies are gone. There are crumbs in the hallway. There's chocolate on my son's cheek. But what do you immediately start doing? You start interpreting those facts. You start investing them with meaning. You start connecting them together in certain ways. And you probably don't say, I know what happened. Our dog came, grabbed a couple cookies, and while he had some chocolate on his tongue, he licked my son's face. And this is what explains what happened to the cookies. And you don't do that in part because of 
your prior beliefs and assumptions. You also probably don't say these are unrelated facts. You may have heard this before. Often we are talking about evidence or facts. People rightly say there's a difference between correlation and causation. Correlation is saying these two things happen to be true at the same time. We don't necessarily know if they're connected or not. Causation says this happened because of this. And so you see the crumbs on the floor and you say the crumbs on the floor happened because someone took the cookies and the chocolate's on his face because he ate the cookies that are missing. And you're tying these things together. You're creating an understanding. You're, you're, you're evaluating these facts. And you do so often in light of prior assumptions. That what you expect to see inevitably causes you to, to look at things a certain way and to explain them in a certain way. Now, I mentioned you, you don't necessarily assume the dog did it. You certainly wouldn't think that if you don't own a dog. If you have no dog, you wouldn't think, well, maybe the dog actually took the cookies. And you're probably not immediately going to assume, I bet we have mice. In part because you don't want to think you have mice. You're inclined not to want to think that, and so you're not inclined to make that conclusion. You want to find another explanation that avoids one that you don't want to conclude. And if you know your son has lied to you in the past, and he tells you, no, I didn't need it, you're not inclined to believe him. You especially wouldn't be inclined to believe him if he gives you some kind of story that seems very implausible. If he says, mom, you won't believe it. Aliens came, grabbed these cookies, ate them, smeared some chocolate on my face, and then left. And you would say, I don't believe that. In part, because you think your son is known to have lied to you in the past, in part because maybe you think there aren't aliens who came to our house. Now, when you kind of begin with the belief that this explanation is not possible, it causes you to, to look at the facts and truths in certain ways. And, and maybe you've, you've seen this kind of example in some kind of uh, mystery or, or crime, uh, crime fiction in which there's uh, a murder, or someone's dead, we'll put it that way, someone has died, and the detective starts to look at it, and the police chief says, hey, buddy, you know, this is a suicide, and so I want your conclusion to be this is a suicide. Or, you know, you can't investigate the mayor because the mayor can't be implicated in this. And so what's just happened? They've said, conclusion A off the table. And if you say, it doesn't seem like a suicide, I mean, because the way he died, it'd be really hard for him to have killed himself. The gun's lying halfway across the room. Um, where it's shot, he was shot in the back. That seems hard to do as a suicide. You say, well, it doesn't matter. It is a suicide. So figure out an explanation. And what do you start doing? You start trying to force facts into a certain way. Now in science, there is rightly what's often called a methodological naturalism. And what that means is, in scientific exploration, people are, are initially looking to say, can I find an explanation for what happened here within the created order? Can I see, well, this happens 
in this way because of, of this explanation, right? So these chemicals respond to each other and that produces this result. And I think that's a legitimate way to, to generally approach science. The reason we call that a method, methodological naturalism is it's saying we're going to start by saying, can we find some causation within the created order? Evolution goes beyond that. Evolution adopts full-blown naturalism or, or fully philosophical naturalism. What that means is this. There are no explanations outside of this world. And so they begin by saying, you cannot point to God as a cause. You cannot explain what you see around you with anything outside of the material world. Matter is all we have, the material world, and it's all naturalism. There are no supernatural beings. And so then you begin to say, well, it really seems like there's some kind of order and design in this world. It seems as if maybe someone made it and they'd say, well, that's impossible because there is no God. And so find another explanation for the evidence. And this is why I'm saying evolution is not science. Evolution is its own worldview. It's its own religion. It's its own way of looking at the evidence and then coming to certain conclusions. Evolution not only adopts naturalism, evolution also adopts something called uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is the belief that what we see happening today has always happened in the exact same way. And so all of the processes that we see happening right now, all the things that we see occurring right now, it's been that way forever. Now, for a long time, scientists didn't take that approach. There actually was a shift, especially in the realm of geology, looking at uh, the nature of you know, rocks and, and, and fossils and things like that, that was actually called catastrophism. And catastrophism was the idea that's saying a lot of what we see was the result of major catastrophes, things like massive floods and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and these kinds of things. And so in these catastrophes, things happen very quickly. And you can't simply say, well, let's look at it now and let's see what's happening right now, and let's just extrapolate that into the past. And actually, Scripture would tell us that pure uniformitarianism is not true. And I want you to see this in the passage. In 2 Peter chapter 3, let me invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. 2 Peter 3 and verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, in many ways, that's a great definition of uniformitarianism. What we see today is the same thing that's been happening ever since the world began. And so here, people in particular are saying, God's not going to come and destroy the world and make a new world. Things like that don't happen. 
the world just continues on in this ongoing cycle. And that matches up generally with an evolutionary kind of perspective. But look at Peter's response in verse five. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And so what's he saying? Well, things haven't always existed this way because there was a first time. God actually made the world. There wasn't the world and then there was the world. And that's what we've been talking about in Genesis 1. All of a sudden, here's creation and it wasn't here before. And if you, at the beginning, at the, at the end of the creation week, looked around and you were just plopped in on day seven and you looked around at this world, you couldn't say, well, I bet this has been going on for a long time. Because it hadn't. It only been happening for seven days. And so there was a, a massive change in the history of the world, the very beginning of it. But there was more than that. Peter goes on, verse six through which, that's talking about water, through water, the world at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. We will eventually get to Genesis 6 and talk about the flood. But here, Peter says, there was another really massive event that happened, a worldwide flood. And that flood, basically, you'll see with his language, what happened? It destroyed the world at that time. In one sense, I think what Peter would be saying is if you want to say, what was the world like before the flood? It's practically impossible for us to figure that out by looking at the world today. Because that world was gone. The world was massively changed through this flood. So in a sense, we can't even get back to exactly what the world was like before the flood by looking at our world today. And so we can't say uniformitarianism can tell us where the world came from. And uniformitarianism is not true as well because there's going to come a day in which God stops all the processes of this world. When he steps in to judge the world with fire and destroys the world, and makes a new world. And so from a biblical perspective, we can't actually fully adopt this assumption. And evolution does. Evolution says there weren't these kinds of events. There weren't these things that stepped in and utterly changed the nature and structure (coughs) of our world. And as well, This isn't just true of evolution. This is true of science in general. That as much as science tries to emphasize just following the evidence, just following the facts, just going wherever the truth leads us, because science is driven by humans and humans inevitably cannot be fully objective, there is always a pressure within the scientific community to adopt the basic paradigm and framework of whatever they understand. And there are people who have looked at the history of science who've pointed this out. And it's not as if the way that science works is you have an idea and then you get more evidence so you slowly tweak that idea and you slowly modify it and then you slowly change it. What actually happens is you have an idea and saying, this is an explanation for everything. And people generally adopt it 
and they try to explain it in light of this. And over time, enough evidence keeps mounting up where they say, I'm not sure how this can be explained in light of our understanding, in light of our theory. And I don't think this can be explained. I don't think this can be explained. I don't think this can be explained either. And eventually there's so many things that that understanding can't explain. That someone comes along and says, no, here's a whole different way to think about it. And so it's not as if it's slowly filtered and adjusted. It actually is basically a revolutionary thought comes into play. As an example of this, you probably have heard this before. Uh, Now, as far as I know, the scientific community believes the sun is the center of the solar system. There was a time in which they believed the earth was the center of the solar system. And I say they because it wasn't just religious people, it was the scientific community. And people call it a Copernican revolution. And they call it that because it completely changed people's understanding of the solar system when they said, wait a minute, the earth isn't at the center, the sun's at the center. And people fought against this idea for a long time because this was the consensus of all smart, intelligent thinking people. And so there's always this pressure to to find an explanation that will match up with the consensus. And again, that's not a purely scientific, objective, follow-the-truth mindset. That's a kind of religious mindset. And you certainly see that with evolution because evolution cannot explain all of the facts right now. Just a couple of examples. We, We could touch on more. But in order for evolution to be true, there's at least two things that you would need quite a bit of. You would need quite a bit of transitional creatures. Species that, that go from you know, this animal to then this step and this step and this step until eventually you get to this other species. So you need a lot of these transitional creatures. And really, they've found almost none of them which is why actually a Harvard uh, scientist, Stephen Jay Gould, actually said, you know what? There's no evidence of these transitional features. I think a better explanation would be it wasn't slow. It was massive jumps in evolution. And so creature A jumped to creature B without these transitions in between. Why? Because we haven't found them. He was trying to find an explanation for the evidence. It hasn't caught on yet. Why? Because the pressure's push back to the the system that's already in place. Another thing that you'd need is you'd need mutations in creatures that increase the amount of information within the genetic code. Because in order to have a process going from more simple single-celled organism to more complex, you need additional information. And to this point in time, they've never seen a mutation that adds information. It can take away information. It can switch them, but it doesn't create new information. And that should be happening a lot if evolution is true. And there's no evidence for that. And so those are the kinds of things that you see in which it just doesn't really make sense. And in fact, I don't think even evolutionists believe exactly what they say they believe. They certainly don't live consistently with it. And this is beginning to spill in a little bit with what we'll, we'll talk about but really in the remainder of our time together. Might have to cut this into two sessions. Um, but if evolution's true, 
then we've been in a process for billions of years in which species are dying off all the time. And ones that are better suited to live in the new environment thrive and survive. And that's just the way the world works. And yet, what do we say? Well, let's save the whales. Let's stop this process somehow. Let's no longer have species that are less suited to the environment die off and ones that are better suited live and survive. Why? I have no idea why. Well, I do know why. The law of God's written in their hearts. Within the evolutionary perspective, it doesn't make any sense. The idea that, that if the universe is truly governed by chance, then actually there's no explanation for why science itself even works. Because science needs there to be order and regularity. But evolution, there's a bunch of randomness and chance. And so they don't really believe what they say they believe. Now I said, it is a, a conflict of faith versus faith or religion versus religion. That doesn't mean that biblical creationists are anti-science. It does mean biblical creationists are honest that this isn't a question just for science. Because where the world started from inevitably is a question of faith. If you're in first, second Peter three, go to Hebrews chapter 11, because I want to see, I want you to see this as well. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So we look over the world around us and we say, where did it come from? As I said, science proceeds with the assumption of methodological naturalism. Can we find an explanation in the created order? When we get to the beginning, is there an explanation in the created order? The answer is no. There isn't one. We can't just by observation, we can't just by scientific exploration figure out where did everything come from? What's the only way we can know that? God had to tell us. The one who was there had to say, this is where it came from. This is how it happened. It's not made by that which is visible. And the only way we can know that is by faith. We believe what God has said. And this really gets to the heart of the conflict. Because at the heart of the conflict is ultimately not this. Where's the evidence? Where's the science? The heart of the conflict is this. Who's the ultimate authority? Who gets to determine what is true and what is not true? In evolution, who's the ultimate authority? Me. Or the scientific community. Humanity. They're the ultimate authority. But in a biblical worldview, who's the ultimate authority? God. He's the one who's in charge. That this world is not self-existent. 
We don't come from nothing. We come from someone. And the real problem is not, there's not enough evidence. Because Romans 1 tells us what? Since the beginning of the world, it's clearly seen. It's understood by what has been made. The problem is not there's not enough evidence. What's the problem? Our sin causes us to reject the evidence that's there. Our sin causes us to say, I don't like that conclusion. I don't like thinking there's mice in my house. I'm going to look for something else. I don't like thinking there's a God who made me. I'm accountable to this God and he will judge me. So let me find another explanation. Not necessarily a better explanation, but one that allows me to exclude God. That's really the heart of the conflict between these two religions. Is God in charge or is man? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed to us in your word where we came from, where this world came from. We thank you that you have revealed to us who you are so that we might know you and serve you. Would help us to submit ourselves to you. Help us not to to raise ourselves up, to look to ourselves as, as our own authority, as our own arbiters of truth and error. But help us to believe you, to humble ourselves, and to submit our thinking to yours. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.